I am not certain how many sermons I've preached in this series, basically asking and trying to answer two questions. Uh, are the Ten Commandments applicable for Christians? Should Christians try to obey the Ten Commandments? And my, I've tried to answer yes. And then the second question is, what does that look like? What should that look like? Now, we started in the beginning with the creation of Adam and Eve and saw that they were created in the image of God. We looked at some texts outside of the Genesis uh, account of Adam and Eve's creation in the image of God and the after the likeness of God. We looked at some texts outside of that because the Bible ends up shedding light on what's the mechanics of their souls. Uh, we see, for instance, texts in like Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. They're actually talking about the work of grace having only already been accomplished in the recipients of those letters because they're believers in Christ. And they are renewed after the image of the one who made this, them. So there's this renewal that goes on in regeneration that makes us different than we were in one sense, uh, but more like uh, Adam and Eve at their creation, except we have this thing we, called, we call remaining sin. Uh, man was made morally upright. Man was made, and, and Eve was made with the ability to engage with the world outside of them and then uh, bring that information in and coming out of their hearts and lives and actions would have been deeds corresponding with the law of God written in their hearts. But they fell into sin. And so what we did at some point, we said, okay, it looks like there's some sort of law written on their hearts. They're still creatures. It's still there. Their ability to comply with it, obviously, is distorted and fragmented and messed up. Uh, does that reflect itself in the rest of Scripture? And it does. If you read from Genesis 3, the fall into sin, all the way up through Exodus 19 before the stone tablets were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, we have this tendency, and I think it's a good instinct, to interpret the good and bad actions and, and to judge the good and bad actions of the saints or the ain'ts before that by virtue of these Ten words, the Ten Commandments. I think it's right to do so. The theologians a long time ago called it the, the, the natural or moral law, uh, both written on the heart and written on stone tablets. And then we looked at uh, the function of the Ten Commandments during the Mosaic Covenant, the economy of the Mosaic Covenant, or the old dispensation, like the Puritans would say, uh, before dispensationalism came in. And we saw its central focus, not merely because it was written on stone tablets, but because God himself wrote that which was on the stone tablets. And, uh, and then it had this regulating function within ancient Israel. We also saw in the prophets, by the way, we didn't, one thing I didn't do is to show you the violations of the Ten Commandments that the prophets scold ancient Israel for. It's all over the place. I think Jeremiah has the most of them, but, but the prophets just assume the, uh, the uh, centrality of the Decalogue or Ten Commandments, and they scold the ancient people for violating. They are, God, it, they are God's prosecuting attorneys. But we looked at the prophets primarily to help us with the future. What's promised in the Old Testament in relation to this law that God wrote on stone tablets? 
Uh, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will write my law on their hearts. I will put it on their minds, Jeremiah 31. So that's a prophecy of a future day, the new dispensation or the gospel covenant inaugurated by the blood of Christ has the work of grace uh, in, in it, promised by the prophets, not only Jeremiah, we looked at Ezekiel 36, very important passage, because he will, I will give you my spirit, I will put my spirit in you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. And so that's the work of grace or regeneration, it's invisible, it's a divine act, it's divine power uh, executed towards sinners and terminating on their souls and changing them, making them different than they were before, giving them uh, the forgiveness of sins as well, but also regenerating their, their dead hearts, making them alive to God, making them able to interact with the law, not only written on their hearts, but interact with the, the written word of God in a way they couldn't as, and can't as unbelievers. So we saw those promises in the Old Testament, and then we went to the New Testament. Does the New Testament link those promises with in the language of fulfillment? Can we read the New Testament and see that, yes, the new covenant has been inaugurated, the new covenant that promised not the writing of God's law on stone tablets, but on fleshly hearts, and that's basically what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. We also looked at Romans 13 and saw that Paul very easily, very conveniently can cite uh, some of the Ten Commandments and, and reduce those to you shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself, which taught, taught us a lot of things. The, the moral law or the Ten Commandments are, are a, a convenient summary of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, and they can be reduced to a single command, at least the second part can, and the first part can as well. Love God, first four commandments. Love your neighbor, last six commandments. The Bible does that. It reduces those commandments, those various numerated commandments, to the two love commands. So when you read the old catechisms, you know, they're not just making this up. It's a it's a move they're making that they see reflected in Holy Scripture. Can't remember everything else by way of introduction, except to say, I have said before, there are some very pronomian, that means for law-keeping texts in the New Testament, and there are very antinomian against keeping the law texts in the New Testament. It's one of the difficulties Christians have had, especially in the last 150 years or so, is the pro-law texts, there are some, we've already looked at those, and the anti-law texts, there are some, and we're going to look at some of those. And because of that real apparent contradiction, there are various views in the Christian church. There wasn't various views in the Christian church up until about 150 years ago or so on the, on the major issues involved with the perpetuity of the Ten Commandments. That has come about through various reasons, and I'm off the lecture, the sermon notes, so I'm going to get back to uh, looking down at least a little. So I have sought to prove to you that, among other things, that Jeremiah prophesies the Christ, that Christians have the law that God wrote on stone tablets, the Ten Words, written on their hearts by the Spirit of God, sent by the Son of God. I tried to show you that, especially last week and the week before. The Spirit of God also causes Christians to delight in God's law 
and obey it. That was a promise of Ezekiel 36, 27. Here are the words of God's written word. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. The New Testament, we've seen, gives us the way in which the new ten, excuse me, the Ten Commandments are to be applied by Christians. So remember the two initial questions. Should Christians obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. What should that look like? I'm saying, well, we got to mine the New Testament for that because we're talking about believers in Christ this side of the cross, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And things have changed. Uh, read the book of Hebrews, you know, uh, the book of Hebrews, the author, Paul, right? Amen. Paul, uh, the, almost the entire patristic era says Paul wrote he- Hebrews. Anyway, um, Hebrews says over and over and over again to professing Christians who were from a Jewish background, don't go back. Uh, we're in the future now the future that the Old Testament promised, okay? Don't go back. We're in the future. That which the prophet said would take place has come about through the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. Things have changed. That which pointed to his bloody death on the cross, the sacrificial system, has has fulfilled its purpose and therefore has been abrogated as law that God's people are now responsible to obey. We don't offer physical sacrifices via Levitical priests either three times a year or weekly. We're not responsible to do that. We can learn from those laws because those laws were were not ends in and of themselves. They were a means toward an end. We can learn more about those laws now that Christ has fulfilled them and by virtue of fulfillment abrogated them. We can go back now that the fulfillment has come and learn more of the details of how those things pointed to Christ, but we don't go back and do them, okay? That's clear from the, from the book of Hebrews over and over and over again. So the New Testament gives us the way in which we should obey these Ten Commandments, what our lives should look like. Now, I believe this is clear and is by far, I know this, the majority view of the Christian church throughout her history. Matter of fact, early on, Christian theologians, uh, when talking about faith, hope, and love, they would often break those down further into the the Nicene Creed, what we believe, faith, the promises about the future, hope, or we could even say the Beatitudes, because they did that, and love, the Ten Commandments. So some of you have probably read 17th century uh, volumes that deal with a creed. Uh, the, uh, Thomas Watson has a trilogy. Um, the Westminster Confession, or the Shorter Catechism, excuse me, the Beatitudes, and the Ten Commandments, faith, hope, and love. It's a really old trilogy, and it's reflected throughout the history of the Christian church that the Ten Commandments remain the responsibility of Christians to obey, not to life, but from life. Okay, it was 
Not, nobody fought over this until 150 years ago or so. So I want to face uh, head-on some typical objections. There are some objections that are, they're, they're not bad objections. People that use these objections aren't necessarily dumb, okay? They're just wrestling with some issues. And I hope to state them clearly and fairly and then um, kindly blow them out of the water. The first is this. It's a typical one, especially in our day. The law in the Old and New Testaments always refers to the entirety of the Mosaic law. The whole thing, the whole law of the Old Covenant, the law for ancient Israel. I don't know if you've heard that before. I've seen it many, many times, especially in contemporary uh, writings. The law in the Old and New Testaments always refers to the entirety of the Mosaic law. It doesn't. The word law refers sometimes to the entirety of the Mosaic law, what we might call the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. Other times, the word law just refers to the written word of God. Sometimes it refers to the word law. Sometimes it refers to a specific commandment of the Bible. Sometimes the word law refers to Everything that Moses wrote, the entirety of the Pentateuch, the five scrolled book we call, books we call ex, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and De- Deuteronomy. So, so here's the, the, the pushback, the objection stated in a, maybe a more simple term. Since Christians are not under the Mosaic law as a whole, then Christians cannot be under it in any of its parts. Okay? You can't just go back and extract parts of the Mosaic Law and say, well, those are the ones that are, the Christians are to obey, but the other ones they can't. That's, that's their argument. You can't do that. You cannot be under it in any sense. You're not under law, but under grace. We're going to deal with Romans 6.14 in a minute. So they might say, the law in Jeremiah's prophecy cannot have anything to do with the Old Covenant and its law. Remember Jeremiah's prophecy? I will write it on their uh, hearts. I will put it in their minds. But Paul takes up the language of Jeremiah and transfers the writing of the law on stones to hearts under the fulfilled New Covenant era. Now, at first glance, this appears to be a very strong objection. You can't break up the law. Therefore, whatever the law is for us, it's got to be a new one. It can't be an old one. Um, uh, new lawism is called neo-nomianism. We're not under the old law. We're under the new law. We're not under Moses' law. We're under Christ's law. We have a new law, and it's morally superior to the ancient law. So that's what people say. It sounds good, um, at least at face value, but but is it right? Now, I would respond to that saying this. We are not arguing that the law in Jeremiah's prophecy has anything to do with Christians in their present relationship to the older Mosaic covenant. Okay, if you didn't come to use your brain this morning, I'm calling you to attention What I just said, I said it very carefully. Let me say it again. We are not arguing that the law in Jeremiah's prophecy, write it on their hearts, put it in their minds, has anything to do with Christians, people who believe the gospel on this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ, in their present relationship to the older Mosaic covenant. I'm not saying that at all. 
because we're not under the older Mosaic covenant. What we're saying is there, there's something that God used under and within the Mosaic covenant that actually has transcovenantal perpetuity. It e- e- even, we can say this, it actually predated it. That's why I tried to show you all 10 of the Ten Commandments predate the giving of the law on Sinai, which shows that it's not exclusively Mosaic. It has a, a, a more basic foundation than God's ancient covenant with ancient Israel. And basically, that would be creation itself in the image of God. Neither are we saying that we are under any law in order to obtain temporal blessings promised to God's ancient people in the land of promise. We're not under a law so that, so that as we obey it, our land gets blessings that God promised to ancient Israel. Sadly, some of looked at America like that. We are the new Israel, America, okay? And to the degree that we as American citizens obey the law of God, to that degree we can expect all the promises that God gave ancient Israel. It's like, no, 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 ouch is correct. Um, We're not that great. Uh, Compared to a lot of nations throughout the history of the world, we're good or better, but uh, we're not saying that either. Or worse, we're not saying this. Okay, this promise in Jeremiah is that we'd have the law written on our, our hearts, put in our minds, to, in order to obtain salvation and eternal life. You don't want that one, do you? I'm going to put my law in your mind and write it in your hearts um, so that you might obey it to obtain life eternal. We're not saying that is either. This neonomian new lawism that I talked about, some people in history have said this. Christ came and fulfilled the old law for our justification, but he instituted a new law to complete our justification. So justification has a twofold basis, the work of Christ for us and our work for Christ. Anybody want that one? We don't want that one either. Richard Baxter wanted it, and that's why they pushed back hard against, against him in the 17th century. We're not saying it's a new law unto life uh, either. What has been argued, and I think it is the case, is that Jeremiah's prophecy refers to the basic fundamental law of the new covenant, which is the same for the older Mosaic covenant, which is the same for those who predated the older Mosaic Covenant. There's a fundamental law that's, that comes with the stuff of our existence, ultimately from God, that everyone is under. But all of us have original sin and, and the pollution of nature and un, are unable to obey it. Originally, its purpose was unto life, a quality of life better than Adam's created state. Adam fell short of that, the state of glory. So what we need is not uh, God's writing and rewriting it on our hearts so that we might do that. We need an Adam to do that. And that's what the Lord Jesus is. The last Adam, who was born of a woman, born under the law in order that he might redeem. We're not under Moses' law as the ancient Jews were, but we are creatures created in the image of God, just as they were, with the law, we could say, rewritten on our hearts. 
We do have duties as Christians that are very much the same as ancient Israel under the old covenant. Monotheism. The Lord, the Lord our God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. Should Christians confess that? Yes, that's the first commandment. Um, you read the Old Testament, it's full of idolatry. And you're, as you're reading, you're going, that's a violation of the second commandment. Should we try to uphold the second commandment, this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ? Worship God as he has revealed himself to be worshipped in his word. I hope you would say, yes, well, yes. So some of our, the basic duties, they're the same. How they're fleshed out can look different because of a shift, a massive shift that took place at the resurrection of the incarnate Son of God. We're to love God and our neighbors. That's in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, that those two, love God, love your neighbor. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. Weird context if you read them, especially the Leviticus one. But Jesus has no problem dipping back there and saying, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul does the same thing in Romans 13, where he says the love commands toward our neighbor can be summarized in this, love your neighbor as yourself. They get it from this obscure text in, uh, in, Luke, in Leviticus 19. And the reason why they do that, do that, did that, is because our Lord did that during his earthly ministry, Matthew 22, 37, and 39. So one of the things we learn from looking at Jesus and the law and looking at the apostles and the law is that some laws of the Mosaic or Old Covenant transcend that covenant. Matter of fact, remember the first murder? The first murder was Cain who killed his brother. Genesis Genesis chapter 4. If you read from Genesis chapter 1-1 through chapter 4 where he committed that crime, do you see any prohibition against murder? No. Do you see any um, requirement to love your neighbor as yourself? No. But everyone that reads it goes, wrong. So there's something going on behind the scenes, isn't there? There's something already... Uh, within the theater of man's consciousness, I think it's by virtue of the fact that he's a creature created in the image of God, that should have told him that taking my brother's life for the reason he did is wrong. As a matter of fact, in 1 John, we are told that he was a murderer from the beginning in the context of not, of, of John's telling the saints they need to love one another. So he was a murderer who didn't love his brother, but there's no prohibition against murder and no command to love your neighbor as yourself. But both of them we know were, uh, were uh, abiding and, valid and, and valid at the time, even though they're not explicitly written in the written word of God, or even we are not even told that they knew those things to be true or false. But they did. How could subsequent scripture frown on him without there being something already in place 
that he's held accountable to. And this has always been the case. Um, we are to worship the one and only true God of the Bible the way he says. We are not to take God's name in vain. It's always been the case. We must rest for the purpose of public worship and acts of private worship, and we must work or labor, both that kind of rest, rest unto worship, and rest from labor. The rest and the labor are actually grounded in creation itself. They are what the theologians call creation ordinances. We'll get to that soon. It's always been the case. We owe respect and obedience to parents and all authority figures in our lives. It's always been the case. We must respect life and not murder others either by taking their lives unlawfully or even by hating them. It's always been the case. We must keep ourselves sexually pure and either committing adultery in our acts, words, or thoughts. It's always been the case. We must respect the property of others and not steal. It's always been the case. We must tell the truth and not lie. And we must be content with what we have and not commit idolatry by coveting things and people the Lord has not given us. Now, those things have always been the case. And if you're tracking with me, there were 10 things. I think I missed the first one. Uh, we must worship the, the one and true God alone. That was the first one I missed. But there were 10 things I mentioned all reflective of the Ten Words, Ten Commandments. Maybe looking at it another way will help. Just as God incorporated the law written on man's heart at creation into the Old Covenant, expressed on the Ten Stones and then written by Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy, he does the same under the New Covenant. He incorporates it, he utilizes it. Might have a different function, but it's still there. This Natural law became what it was not at Sinai. It became formally promulgated, visible to see on stone tablets. Did it come into existence then? No. It became what it was not, formally promulgated, technical word for made known publicly on stone tablets, and then in the written uh, uh, oracles of Moses. But it didn't change. It just became what it was not. You can then see it. This natural law was published by God himself on stone tablets, and that same law is incorporated into the new covenant. This law, then, is not only trans-covenantal, we could even say it's trans-cultural as well, because people from all cultures throughout the entire history of the world will one day be held ultimately accountable to this very Law, because they are image bearers and they violated God's law. They are under the just judgment of God. So that's the first objection. Here's the second objection. If the law in Jeremiah refers to the Ten Commandments, why didn't God repeat them word for word in the New Testament exactly as they come to us in the Old Testament? If not repeated, therefore not binding. I, I added this. If not repeated word for word, not binding. And you'll see why I did that before. You ever heard that one? If not repeated, therefore not binding. It's, it's typical. It's, it's a hermeneutic. It's a grid. It's a lens through which people try to figure out what Christian ethics are. 
simply put, if repeated, then binding. If not repeated, not binding. Again, appears on the surface level to be a sound argument. But is it really? God already revealed the Ten Commandments twice in the Old Testament. Twice isn't enough for you. That's you got to deal with that. God prophesied their presence under the inaugurated new covenant, inaugurated by the shed blood of our Lord in both the Old Testament and the language of fulfillment in the New Testament. Also, the Ten Commandments are either quoted or assumed to be good and right by the New Testament in many places, sometimes in evangelistic contexts, the Ten Commandments are cited to point out somebody's sin and violation of the law, sometimes in didactic, that is, teaching contexts for Christian sanctification, they're referenced, Romans 13. So we're not arguing the word-for-word thing. We're arguing whatever the core, whatever the essence of the ten words is, that's what's morally binding. Paul references the fifth commandment as that which is right for children to obey, Ephesians 6. Now, I, I would push back on this. If it's not repeated, therefore not binding. I would say, do you actually need God to repeat the sixth commandment verbatim, you shall not murder, in order to believe that murder is now sinful? You really want to go that direction? Not repeated, therefore not binding. What if it just happened that thou shalt not murder wasn't repeated? What would you say? I already showed you that prior to the giving of the law in Sinai, Cain killed his brother Abel, which was recorded in Genesis 4. In John, 1 John chapter 3, John tells us that Cain was of the evil one and actually the example of someone who did not love, but there's no prohibition and no positive command to love. No prohibition of murder, no positive command to love. How about the 10th commandment? If not repeated word for word, therefore not binding. The 10th commandment is never repeated word for word in the New Testament. Thou shalt not covet. Because here's the entirety of the command. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. That command, as given here, is not repeated in the New Testament, that is word for word. How many want to say, therefore, covet it up? Does that even mean anything? I... Send it up. However, the Tenth Commandment is reduced to its essence, I think at least three times, twice by Paul, once by our Lord. You shall not covet. Full stop. As soon as you read that, if your, your blood's bibbling at least a little, you shall not covet. What are you going to do? Oop, Tenth Commandment. That's all that's contained in the New Testament. You shall not covet. covet. Full stop. Uh, 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 put off covetousness, Colossians 3, 5, which is idolatry. So there you have the 10th commandment reduced to a single word. 
covetousness. And then look what it does, which is idolatry. I think that's the New King James translation. I prefer that translation. I think it's right. Which is idolatry. Tenth commandment. When you violate the tenth commandment, you violate the second commandment. You put a creature before God. You make the supreme object of your affections something made. Now, you want to get really stingly in Colossians chapter 3. You know what the context is there? Sexual sins. Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness, being discontent with your either singleness or your married state and having thoughts or even doing things, but worse in one sense, even having thoughts about doing something about your discontentment outside the law of God is a form of idolatry. There again, two commandments assumed perpetually applicable for Christians without them being cited in their entirety, incited, uh, cited, without them being cited in their entirety, word for word, by New Testament authors. Here, Paul, Jesus does the same thing. See what I'm getting at? This word, this not repeated, therefore not binding, it, it doesn't work. Did you know that the first four commandments are not repeated in the New Testament word for word, and neither are the ninth and tenth? Both the ninth and tenth are way longer in the Old Testament than they when they're referenced in the New Testament. We're not, you don't want to say, oh, first commandment, second commandment, third commandment, fourth commandment, ninth commandment, and tenth commandment are no longer binding on Christians because they are not repeated in the New Testament word for word. You don't want to say that. If you do, stop it. Just knuckle under. Something is morally binding about this thing we call the Decalogue, and it doesn't have to be an a, a anchor around our neck. Uh, matter of fact, I think it's, it's actually the way for freedom in the Christian life, but we'll get there in a minute. No one in their right mind argues that only the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th commandments carry over into the New Testament and therefore are the only only ones applicable to Christians because they're the only ones repeated word for word. Nobody does. Well, nobody in their right mind does that. I remember saying this one time or writing this, and somebody said, uh, somebody probably has. My comeback to that is, well, yeah. I said nobody in their right mind. There are numbskulls out there, and we're, we're a group of them. We're numbskulls as well, because if you're like me, you used to think this way about some of the commands. The point is that the essence of all ten of the Ten Commandments carries over to the New Testament, and that is what we expect from Jeremiah's prophecy and elsewhere. A third Typical objection is this, and this will be hopefully shorter. The New Testament says that we are not under law, but under grace. I just quoted the written word of God there, Romans 6.14. We are not under law, but under grace. We do not have to obey the law of God. We just need to bathe our souls in the grace of God. Not law, 
just grace. This objection is often based on Romans 6.14, which reads this way, For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Romans chapter 6. Very familiar verse, and I think a very misunderstood verse as well. Uh, I accentuated two words in the verse. For... Sin shall not have dominion over you. For connects us with something that's already said. We'll look at that in a second. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why not? For you are not under law, but under grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why not? Let's see verses 12 and 13. They help us. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Don't live like you used to, basically. That's what he's talking about. Don't live like you used to. Don't don't follow your heart like you used to. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin like you used to. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to to God. For, since you're a Christian, since you are true believers, sin shall, shall not have dominion over you. Why won't it have dominion over me? Because I'm not lost. I'm not under law. But I'm under grace. Now, how should we respond to the, to, the, to the objection? We're not under the law, but we're under grace. Note, first of all, Paul states a true fact of all believers in Christ. Sin shall not have dominion over you. I think uh, Paul is basically what he's saying is this. One of the evidences you know, of being a true Christian is, as bad as my Christian life and as stupid as my sins might be as a believer, I ain't nowhere close to what I used to be. You think I'm bad now. You should have seen me then. You know, I, I think that's basically what he's, what he's getting at here. Sin shall not have dominion over you. You got a different Lord now. Sin used to be your Lord, your, your domin, domina, dominos, or, or uh, dominos, domina, whatever, domini. Sin used to be your Latin Lord. Now you have another Lord. We don't want to say, sin used to be my Lord, the law is now my Lord. We don't want to say that. You can say that if you want. No, don't say that. Don't want to say that either. Um, Sin shall not have dominion over you. It's not a commandment. Thou shalt not let sin have dominion over you. It's not a commandment. It's a statement of fact. It's not going to have dominion. Could it have what looks like dominion over you for a period of time, true believers can fall into horrible sins and patterns of them. But in due time, God rescues them. Verse 14 functions as an incentive to fulfill the commands of verses 12 and 13. Verse 14 is a statement of fact. Christians are not under the dominion of sin. And then Paul gives two reasons why believers are not under the dominion of sin. One is negative and one is positive. 
The first reason is negative, for you are not under the law. The second reason is positive, but you are under grace. Now, to be under the law in this text means to be lost. That's all it means. And under the condemning uh, ministry of the law of God. Thou art the man, and you're guilty, and you can't change the color of your stripes. You're in big trouble, and all the stripes are against you. So that's the negative one. You're lost. And then the positive one, but you're under grace. That means you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. That's why you can say later, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace has been lavished upon you. Regeneration, that that mystical work of God that Jesus likens it unto the wind. It's the work of the Spirit. The wind blows where it listeth, where it wants to, okay? Regeneration happens by divine summons, not because we've made ourselves regeneratable, but because God is merciful and sovereign. So he's talking about lost state and saved state here. Lost people are under the dominion of sin, and one of the law's functions is to condemn them in their lost state. Some of us had a, 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 a conversion experience that might have taken a while. For me, it was a few months. But increasingly was this sour taste in my soul about my sins. I felt increasingly guilty. And we know what the interesting was is the more guilty I felt, the more I wanted Sunday to come. I I used to say, one of my friends asked me, why do you go to church? I said, because it it gives me the hurt that feels good. Whatever that means. You know what that means. I I messed up. There's got to be an answer. And it's not within me. And and it's not, certainly not within my friends, at least back then. And no doctor could have prescribed something, physician, prescribed a pill for me. I couldn't go over to Long's or wherever. they have Long's anymore? That was a drugstore back, back in the 60s and 70s. And, and get a pill that would solve my problems. So every week when I'd go, I'd feel worse but feel better because I was slowly but surely going, there, there is an answer. You know, at first... It was foggy. I didn't see it for all its value. And I still don't, by the way. We see in a glass dimly. Uh, we'll see the value of the glory of Christ in the, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, eschaton, in the, in the fulfillment of all the promises of God, in the new heavens and the new earth. But so, so that to be under grace in this text means to be saved due to God's gracious plan of salvation in Christ. Paul had already dealt with justification in chapters 4 and 5, or 3 through 5. So, um, obviously, these people are justified people that he's talking about, the ones under grace. Adoption, uh, although that's in Romans 8. Uh, sanctification, which is in a lot of places in the book of... And certainly glorification, all those things are benefits received. Even sanctification is a benefit received when you're under grace. It's not something that uh, everyone's under law, and if you achieve certain things, you get these goodies. No. It's you're under grace. God gave them to you. God has lavished them upon you. Saved people can obey the injunction of ver- the injunctions of verses 12 and 13. Lost people can't. 
Lost people, like, they can't help themselves. Uh, saved people can't help themselves, but God helps saves, saved people. So this verse does not teach that Christians are to have nothing to do with God's law in the way of sanctification. It's one thing to be under law as a sinner as a means to life, which is impossible to attain since the fall, as a means whereby one obeys to get salvation and eternal life, again, impossible for sinners, as a means to get right with God, impossible, or earn an, uh, either a temporal or eternal inheritance. It's one thing, and all those are impossible. But it is quite another to obey because we have received life. See, it's one thing to say, obey unto life, do this and live. It's another thing to say, believe, then live. It's one thing to obey unto glory. It's another thing to be under grace and live out a thankful life. Because someone has made us right with God. Because someone else has earned an inheritance for us. So we could put it this way. We're still bound to obey God's law. Some people don't like that word, bound. Uh, a Puritan put it this way in the title of his book, The True Bounds of Christian Freedom. And he talks about how the law functions in our life. The true bounds of Christian freedom. You're going to see what the law is? It's not a power. It's a guide rail. It provides hedges. The power, it doesn't impel it directs, but it doesn't impel. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. There's the power. So we are bound to obey the law of God, but we don't think it's a bad thing. Not that we may live. Not that we may gain or inherit eternal life based on our obedience, but because we already live. We have life. We've received eternal life. We are heirs of life. We have this bountiful um, inheritance that has been lavished upon us, and we should be overwhelmed by it and say, Thank you. you know, what, is that, what is the thanks going to look like? Um, guilt? Grace? What's the last G of the catechism? Gratitude. And you remember what the two sections in the gratitude section are? Prayer to show our hope and dependence upon God and the law of God. It's a vehicle to show forth our gratefulness and our thankfulness. The only basis of our justification and entitlement to glory is what Christ did for us. What we do for Christ is a result of his work. It does not gain us the benefits of his work. It comes from his work. So I, I hope that's clear. I have one more objection. We'll deal with that the next hour. May the Lord help us. You should be able, at least a little, to get this law, gospel kind of antithesis going on here, that the law in certain of its functions really doesn't have anything to do with the gospel except to say, 
you're in big trouble. Look outside of yourself. I can't, I can't tell you there's good news, but there might be. That, the law does that. You know what the good news is. That's what we call the gospel, the glad tidings, that God has provided for sinners to be right in his sight, to be recipients of his constant mercies and grace. Yes, every moment of our existence. Are you that bad of a Christian that you need the power of God exerted towards you? Exerted. Executed toward you every moment of your life, keeping you in grace, keeping you in Christ. Are you that bad? Yes, sir. But God is that good to work his grace in me that I might do what pleases him. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you don't do in order to get from God. You, you need to get from God first and or you can, that you might do in thankfulness. And you get from God forgiveness of sins, righteousness, status of sonship, uh, uh, a son or daughter of God, inheritance of glory. You get that from God through Christ. And those of us that have gotten that, um, I'll preach to myself. Why aren't you more thankful, soul? Right? I mean, I'm not going to say somebody help me now because already people are going, yeah, why? I'm such a miserable Christian. Doesn't that sound weird? Chief of sinners, excuse me, the chief of sinners, sinners, God saved sinners, among whom, Paul says, I used to be chief. He doesn't say I used to be chief. Paul still viewed himself as a mature writing apostle, as the chief of sinners. You might say, no, I've read Paul's letters. He's not as bad as me. Get behind me, Paul. You're second, playing second fiddle. You know, whatever. That's actually a healthy response to reading those words in 1 Timothy 1. Among whom I am chief of the sinners saved by Christ who came into the world to save sinners. That should be our attitude. That's, that's Romans 7 and Romans 8, Paul's wretched man that all you people reading my book are. Wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death. But praise be to God. Somebody knows Romans 8. Uh, that through Christ we can be set free from our bondage. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word Sometimes these objections have to be dealt with. I pray that it was clear, and anything that was not clear, and certainly all things that were not in accordance with your word, I don't want it to stick in anyone's memory. But everything that accurately reflected your word, I do want that in my own head and heart, in the heads and hearts and lives of all those who are hearing me. So bless the truth and bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.